Okay, well, we want to welcome you all to another Extremist Publishing podcast. This is one of the discussions where we talk about the impact that books have had on the lives of their readers. And today we're talking to director of Extremist Publishing, Tom Christie, who's written most recently on the perception of dementia in popular culture and questions of national identity in Scottish fiction. He's the author of a number of books on cinema and on popular computing, including the films of Linklater and Hughes and Mel Brooks and genres such as Christmas films and James Bond films. And his interest in early popular computing produced a study of interactive fiction on the Sinclair spectrum. And his time working at the Smith Institute in Stirling produced a 19th century mystery thriller called The Shadow in the Gallery. So he's writing fiction as well as talking about the fiction that's impressed him. Tom is an old student of mine from back in the days in University of Stirling, so we go back quite a few years together. But we're here today to talk about his own tastes and interests in fiction in five books that have meant a lot to him. The titles Tom has chosen are Alistair Gray's Lanark, Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange, The Outsider by Albert Camus, Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes, and Paul Auster's New York Trilogy. The first thing that strikes me, Tom, about these books is that apart from the Camus in the 1940s, these are all from the second half of the 20th century, ranging from the 60s to the 80s. Is this because this was just when you were coming into serious reading? Was this a rich period for you? Well, I think that's certainly uh, true. A number of these books I first discovered when I was a teenager, uh, and some of them when I was an undergraduate. Um, so in different ways, they've all come to mean something significant to me. And in many cases, I first encountered them at uh, you know, fairly formative periods. Mm. Yes, uh, only five. Did you, how did you get down to selecting five in particular? I see some themes running through them and we'll get down to that, I'm sure, later. But uh, do you feel there's anything particularly was missed out? Oh, I mean, it, it took an age to, to narrow it down to five. That's absolutely true. Um, there are so many authors I would like to have mentioned, um, not least of all one of my literary heroes, Ian Banks, mm-hmm. um, who was um, made the list and then wasn't and then was and then wasn't as I agonised over who was going to be on this list. So yes, absolutely. It's been a, a long period of uh, negotiation with, with my own memories, as it were, uh, until I was able to narrow it down. I would have thought that at least three of these might be called science fiction. Two of them might be called postmodern fiction. Is that something that you were aware of at the time? Well, I think there was certainly a, an interest in postmodernism that ran through my teenage years specifically as I was learning more about the limits of literature and where they lay. Um, in terms of genre and in terms of uh, how these um, particular categories of fiction are are considered by popular culture particularly. Um, So it doesn't surprise me in that sense that some of them would be termed postmodern. In terms of science fiction, yes, that's something else, another genre that has had um, great personal significance to me over the years. Um, And it's very interesting because, of course, there has been, particularly with titles like A Clockwork Orange, quite vehement debate over how far they could be considered science fiction or mm. speculative fiction. Yeah, science fiction is a, a difficult title, isn't it? And most most serious writers of science fiction now don't like to be don't like their work to be referred to in those terms. Speculative fiction is often thought to be more serious. But as an old fan of science fiction myself when I was a teenager, 
I've found a certain amount of amusement in seeing how suddenly once despised pulp fiction, science fiction authors like Kurt Vonnegut, for example, who were always very fine writers, suddenly become welcomed into the canon of serious literature. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's a path that's been followed by people like Philip K. Dick and many others. Yes. I, I agree entirely that it's, it's a very healthy thing that um, these texts, which previously I think would have been considered to belong to slightly out of the way genres, things that were aside from the mainstream are now, um, as you rightly say, receiving far more serious criticism and, uh, and careful consideration. Yes, these, uh, uh, what Hugh McDermott used to call handrails for Philistines, these definitional categories are never helpful at all. And there was a degree of snobbishness involved in the whole thing too, of course. But now with authors like Banks himself, for example, you mentioned, and David Mitchell, for example, the Cloud Atlas writer. These are now seriously Booker Prize winning, Booker Prize contending uh, books, which once would have been called with a certain degree of uh, disdain science fiction. But those days are gone. Yeah. Tell me about Lanark then. This was, uh, this was a big book. <laughs> and of course, Gray himself doesn't like it being called science fiction. It's not science, he says, uh, Nastler says later in the book. It's magic. <laughs> well, this book um, will always uh, hold a special significance to me. I first encountered it when I was 16, uh, and it was recommended to me by Jim Geeky, who was my high school English teacher. And um, it really, it blew me away when I first read this book. The, the sheer inventiveness of it. Um, the incredible flexibility of the narrative. I mean, it's very difficult to dislike a book where the epilogue turns up three or four chapters early because it's too important to leave to the end, as, as uh, Alistair Gray puts it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that interested me. Um, the evocation of post-war Glasgow versus this very dystopian fantasy version of Glasgow interested me, as did the interplay between the two in the sense that you don't know whether the Duncan Thaw narrative leads directly into the Lanark narrative or whether one is merely a dark reflection of the of the other. Um, so all of these things I found immensely appealing and at that particular point in my life the whole thing seemed very um, alive and a very energetic read because it was bringing alive to me um, a post-war Scotland and a modern Scotland that I hadn't necessarily been all that closely uh, aware of before. Yes, I think that's right. I remember being excited by Lanark on roughly the same themes, really. Here was, here was fiction that was entirely contemporary, that was daring, uh, that was moving outside the rather dark, harsh realism of so many other Glasgow novels through the 60s in particular, in the 60s and 70s, rather gloomy novels of uh, decay and dissolution. And not that Gray shies away from these things, he takes it very seriously. But suddenly there was an energy and an imagination and a grasp and a reach, which was really very exciting. 1981, it was an important step in Scottish publishing, I think. I have read it along with Eddie Morgan's uh, The Second Life, uh, the, the key collection of his career, I think, was similarly exciting when it came out. Do you think the two halves stick together, the, the Lanark and the Thaw? He teases us, doesn't he? Mm. They sort of fit, but maybe they don't. Is Thaw really Lanark in, in the underworld? Well, it intrigues me that in subsequent interviews, Alistair Gray has mentioned that he wanted to have one heavy book instead of two potentially light ones. Mm. Make a bigger splash, he said. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there's certainly an element of that, because I, I 
very much appreciated the the interplay between the two separate narratives and the fact that, as, as Graham himself, I'm sure, pointed out on a number of occasions, that say uh, it was very much up to the reader as to what particular order they wanted to read the individual sections in. That he had presented it in a particular way, but that he didn't necessarily expect it to be read in the way that he had he had suggested. Which, as I say, coming at a formative period in my life. It seemed very daring. I mean, this was a kind of um, stylistic playfulness that I hadn't really uh, encountered before, um, and I found it very arresting. I have a special edition of this novel in a box set with four hardcover novels in the, where you can organise them in the correct order and you can read volumes 1, 2, 3, 4 right through instead of, what was it, 3, 2, 1, 4 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think the the what struck struck me about the the unthank narrative is how political it is. The the personal life of the young artist Thaw, closely based on um, Gray's own life, is a is part of that rather grim realism of of Glasgow fiction. Uh, but the unthank section turns into something really quite different. He says, doesn't he, that the first, uh, the Thaw narrative is a man who fails because he doesn't love, he doesn't know how to love, and that the unthank uh, sequence is about a society that doesn't know how to love. And I think the the vision of the institute and the vision of institutionalization and the, in, the vision of corporate global uh, capitalism run wild mm. in the unthank makes it an important novel for its day. Yeah, as is the case, I think, with the critique of bureaucracy, which I think particularly interesting at that particular point, because looking back, it was such a scathing indictment of, I imagine, that kind of post-war bureaucratic British society that Grey obviously takes exception to, um, and as you say, contrasting that with globalisation in the sense mm. that this was not necessarily the, um, the, the answer to the problem, but perhaps something that was going to compound the problem. Um, I found it at that point quite interesting um, because in a way this was introducing a lot of these themes to me in quite stark ways um, because at that point I had no idea as a teenager just the um, incredible significance of, of Lanark and of Gray himself uh, in post-war Scottish literature and in a way it acted as a gateway um, to my interest in Scottish literature generally. Hmm, that's, that's interesting to hear. Yeah, suddenly there was something about our own place and our own voices that was exciting and new. And I think as well, you know, in combination with people like Ian Banks and Evan Welsh, suddenly I was reading about an Edinburgh and uh, central Scotland and a Glasgow um, that suddenly became very real because up until that point I had been reading a lot of classical literature um, and I went through a phase of reading a lot of philosophy in my, my teenage years and then suddenly it all became very immediate because I was reading about in the work of these authors um, that were situating their uh, fiction within recognisable venues. Mm. Remember what Gray says in the book himself, uh, the notion that a place doesn't really exist until an artist has written about it. Mm. And he says, you know, in a way now Glasgow exists in a special literary sense. Although I would say there are plenty of other earlier novels that brought Glasgow to our attention mm. very vividly. It's fun, though, isn't it? It's hilarious. It is, it's... it is. And I think that's very interesting, the, the fact he's able to make such wide-ranging and serious points, be they philosophical or ideological, and still maintains that sense of playfulness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Talking about uh, authoritarian societies and a failure to love, that maybe brings us to A Clockwork Orange. Mm. Tell me about that. How did you come across that? Well, the high school connection continues with A Clockwork Orange because that was the novel I based my um, higher grade um, review of personal reading on. And it's an intriguing thing because even now, all these years down the line, um, the complex moral and ethical issues at the heart of the novel have stayed with me. Um, the questions of um, whether removing from someone uh, the ability to reason in a moral way somehow robs them of a human element uh, has very much intrigued me because it's fed into uh, a lot of subsequent debate in popular culture um, about why crime happens, what is the nature of society, um, how are cultures influenced by media um, commentary and so forth, um, and in a different kind of way um, in comparison to Lannert, but around about the same time, um, it was bringing these sort of hard-hitting issues into my consciousness for, for the first time. Hmm. It goes back to Milton and Paradise Lost, really, doesn't it? So that if you're not free to do bad things, then you're not free. Hmm. Full yeah. stop. Yeah. Was it, I'm interested that it was your, your a school project. Did that, was there a problem with that? Because it was quite a scandalous book when it first came out. And when the movie came out, there was, a, there was a lot of scandal. I mean, people were banning it from cinemas and things. Yeah, absolutely. Was that an issue when you were at school? Uh, well, fortunately, the English teacher I had for my hires was a, a gentleman called David Addison. Uh, was very broad-minded and was quite happy to engage with the, the book in all of its complexity, even though, as you say, it contains quite a lot of uh, you know, violent content um, and very challenging content. But um, he was certainly quite happy to um, allow me to, to comment on it in a critical way um, and to sort of mention the things that had jumped out at me from it. And it's intriguing because at that particular juncture, which would be about 96, the film is still banned. Um, and it stayed that way, of course, until Kubrick died, because it was he who had imposed a ban on the film in the UK. Mm. Um, so I, I first saw the film many years later, I think it was about 2000, 2001, when I first saw it. Mm. And uh, that impressed me for entirely different reasons. What particularly amazed me was the, the way that Kubrick with all of his trademark visual inventiveness, seemed to recreate so vividly the scenes and the characters and the situations from the novel. Um, although, of course, there is also the controversy of uh, the fact that he had adapted the American edition of the, the novel, which omits the final chapter, and consequently it leaves it with a rather bleak tone that the, the British version of the novel um, omits where um, Alex settles down, mm. really, in, in, the, in the British edition. Yeah. Alex's droogs and the, the ultra-violence, they, they managed. That was a big issue in the 60s, I remember. There was a lot of anxiety about juvenile delinquency and so on. So this was, this was a hot... I mean, I suppose it's always a hot topic, but it was a particularly hot topic in a relatively staid society mm. that Britain was in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true, and I think what intrigued me about it, apart from the fact that you had this very uh, arresting uh, Nadsat dialect, yeah. the, the, this this teenage argo that was heavily influenced by by Russian, 
which I suppose at the, at the height of the Cold War had a, a certain subversive element to it anyway. Whereas that was uh, you know, a, an extraordinarily impressive achievement, given how much of it was, was invented. Um, yes, I think the, the uncompromising nature of the violence, which is unflinchingly depicted but never glorified in any way, um, I found actually quite laudable because he doesn't shy away from it. He's not in any way coy about depicting those scenes. Whilst in interviews since, um, he's often spoken of his distaste of the fact that you know he, he had to re- had to depict them in the way that he did in order for it to uh, to, to suit the the tone of the book. Mm. He um, he wasn't he knew what he was doing. He wasn't afraid to shock us because Alex, the protagonist loves classical music yeah. and he associates classical music and the and the highs and the drama of classical music directly with violence that's why he loves it and so when they cure him they cure him of his violence but it destroys his liking for classical music now that's a kind of fairly frightening connection to make most classical music enthusiasts wouldn't really want to suggest that we love beethoven and storm and drang yeah. because it's associated with violence Yes, good old uh, Ludwig van, as he puts it. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and it's an intriguing thing, actually, because if you fast forward a few years to the production of Die Hard, um, the film's director, John McTiernan, was very keen to have um, a Beethoven uh, ode to joy motif throughout the film. And uh, Michael Kamen, the composer, um, held a contrary view and said, you know, please, I'm quite happy to... Uh, to use Wagner or any of these other composers, but please not not Beethoven. <laughs> it just seems like sacrilege. Yeah. Wagner's okay for apocalypse now. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the next book on your list is uh, The Outsider. This is from 1942, so this is a whole generation earlier, really. The Outsider, L'Etranger, by Albert Camus. Was that was that were you at school when you came across this, or was this a student discovery? It was. I was an undergraduate when I was midway through my undergraduate years when I read uh, The Outsider, and uh, another book that had a, an enormous impact on me. In a sense, uh, and I think you've you've, you've suggested this, um, there there is a combination or a, a contrast to be had with Lanark in the sense that here we have um, a protagonist who, for one reason or another finds it impossible to, to, to feel um, the way that other people do. It has this strange kind of um, emotional block um, that makes it quite difficult for him to interact with society in the way that perhaps he should. Um, and as, uh, as Camus um, has said subsequently, um, there is that sense that in some way society has punished him for not playing the game. He doesn't weep at his mother's funeral, we remember, yes. Yeah, he doesn't show enough, doesn't go through all the required social signals to say how upset he is. Mm. What is the opening lines? Mama died today? <laughs> or maybe it was yesterday, but it doesn't matter. I mean, worse to that effect. <laughs> yeah. He's very cool. Yeah, and that's the intriguing thing, because whereas uh, Alex from A Clockwork Orange is clearly a sociopath, you don't have quite that same sense with the outsider, there is instead that sense that he simply doesn't feel there is an amoral quality to him. He's not by any means making a conscious effort to lack morality. I think he, he, he's simply functioning the way he knows how. And therein lies the central question, do we condemn him for effectively being himself? Or is there some social aspect to his character um, that he, through lacking 
those particular empathetic feelings through having the singular lack of compassion um, should we consider him something other than human? Because obviously, you know, his actions do culminate in a in a murder. It's written in a very flat, kind of affectless style. It's very simple. The French is very simple, very flat, affectless, kind of one thing after another. There's no great emotive force in the prose at all. It's simply a long descriptive account of rather idle days in in Algiers, and uh, including, as you say, shooting an Arab on the beach for no apparent reason. Connected with uh, a dispute they had earlier, but really it's it's, it's not a it's not an act of self-defence or an act of revenge. It's an almost meaningless act, which is what Camus after. Do you think there's something wrong with him? Is, is, is he a sociopath, if not a psychopath? Well, that's an interesting question because there is a sense of complete apathy about him, which intrigues me, because we see in uh, in Duncan Thaw and Lanark someone who, as you mentioned, seems to have a failure when it comes to connecting with people on an emotional level versus Alex Nicolette or Cornish, who simply doesn't care about um, his impact on other people. What matters to him is the immediate and satisfying his own urges. I think the outsider presents someone who is midway between the two. Mm-hmm. He's interested in doing his own thing. He's interested in leading his own life. But he seems not so much to have an antipathy towards other people as simply to regard them as background noise. Isn't isn't it isn't it isn't what Camus is getting at and isn't what uh, Merceau experiences a kind of cosmic indifference? Yes, I think that's that, that's very interesting because I think the second part of the of the novella brings that very sharply to light. The sense in particular where we see his altercation with the priest um, about um, the nature of the human condition and the fact that the priest kind of suggests vaguely that he may have his death sentence conferred, um, which is something that is clearly not the case after the altercation, um, does rather suggest that his actions are being viewed through this very particular and rather inflexible social lens. Um, And that intrigued me, because it seemed to me that Camus was making all these very interesting points about not just one individual who was incapable of of, of interacting with other people um, in a meaningful way, but perhaps society in general, which to me suggested a kind of Beckett-esque commentary. Yeah, I think it's more than than just a political issue. I think it is a philosophical issue, and and this is the great novel of existential absurdity. And I think what Camus is saying is the universe really doesn't care. And whether I act this way or that way, under the eye of eternity, it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean. And it's, I mean, it's terrifying. So Merceau is free in a way, which leaves, in a way which makes him scarcely human or superhuman in, in an odd way. He's just indifferent mm. to what happens to him, and in the end he, he awaits his death quite happily. Poor old Thaw struggles and fails and tries again and fails. He, he makes a kind of constant kind of cock-up of his life, yeah. but he keeps trying. So he, he's, he's a recognisable, uh, fallible human being. Yeah. Alex, as you say, is a psychopath, really, uh, with a love of, <laughs> a love of uh, classical music, who eventually settles down in the way that 
I suppose bourgeois society in the 1960s hoped that the, the rockers and the mods and the teddy boys and all the rest of it would settle down and become decent citizens at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That takes us to Daniel Keyes and Flowers for Algernon. I remember, it's years since I've read this book. I remember reading it. This is another story that deals with um, what it might be uh, to be cured, so to speak, against your will. Yes. Yes. Tell, us, tell us about Flowers for Algernon. Well, I first came to this book in my late teens, and I found it enormously emotionally affecting to the point I've come back to it in years since. Um, I think it probably fair to say it's Daniel Key's most famous work arguably his best work. Mm. And um, what really intrigued me was the way in which he had, from his own life experiences, um, extrapolated this whole issue of what I think is termed in science fiction, uplift. This notion of what it means to experience life um, in, a, in a different way in the sense of this particular character, Charlie Gordon, um, how he feels about um, having this drastically altered IQ where he goes from having an IQ of 68 to an IQ of something like 186, and how that affects him on an intellectual level, but there is this unexpected emotional aspect to this transformation as well, in relation to how he interacts with other people, um, yeah. and how other people relate to him. Yes, he discovers that sheer brilliant intelligence isn't quite enough. You need to love, I mean, you need to, you need to have an empathy for people as well, which is one of the themes in Lanark, mm. and uh, without that, uh, you're not fully human. Mm. And that intrigued me as well, that this aspect of the book, which was, what does it mean to suddenly attain um, expertise or genius in some way? Because most of us go through a long developmental process in any given field where we have to learn and learn and learn. Step by step. Yeah, and then suddenly here's this particular character who has a, a genius intellect kind of dropped on his lap. And um, what's intriguing in one sense is how he makes use of it and then how he squanders it. I think it's at least two movies. I'm trying to remember what they were. You may remember on the same theme of someone who is... Wasn't a, a Mel Gibson movie where he's given a huge boost to his intellect and, and then it fades? You know, it's a similar theme. Well, I think Charlie was the, the one that won the Oscar. I'm sure that was the, the, the adaptation that the American the American cinematic adaptation. And yes, it's intriguing because, of course, it's a book that's had uh, no end of controversy in America. It's actually mm. been banned a number of occasions, and particularly in, in high schools. Um, and uh, that interested me as well, actually, because um, as a work of science fiction, um, it's very successful. But as a, a work of human nature, you know, an exploration of what it is that makes the, the human condition work, um, I found it's actually more successful in that regard. Why was it banned, do you think? Was it because it talks, it, it, you know, this is a book published in 66, mm -hmm. talks fairly bluntly to modern ears about being mentally handicapped, all these words that we're, we're not supposed to use anymore? Well, I think there's certainly an aspect of that, because I think core to the book, whether it be the, the, the short story from which the novel derived or the novel yeah. itself, um, I think there is a very interesting commentary running right the way through as this very potent subtext about how society treats people who have mental disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there is, I think, a clarion call for a greater sense of common humanity, um, which runs through the book, which itself is laudable. But mm -hmm. I think 
beyond that, there's a sense of utter heartbreak as we see this character who achieves um, great intellectual acuity suddenly lose that um, that refinement, but be painfully aware of the fact that it's draining away from it's draining away. Yes, it's it's like a Clockwork Orange. It has its own language, isn't it? It's told in the first person as a Clockwork Orange is, mm. and it's and it has its. The, I remember the early chapters. Um, Charlie, Charlie's spelling mm. is original to say the least. He doesn't spell correctly, really. So there's a, and then gradually as his as his. Uh, Brain is altered by the by the experiments of Professor Namur. Um, he begins to spell correctly, yes, and that, which is quite intriguing. Yeah. And he does such playful things with syntax and, and grammar, and uh, as you say, the spelling as well. It's very very interesting the way that that is used to highlight um, his mental state in both aspects. You know, as he becomes more precise and his his grasp of of, of, of grammar becomes more acute as um, as the, the novel progresses and then of course goes back in reverse again um, reading it as I did in my in my teens and early 20s it, it really the uh, interesting aspects of that to me were the fact that you know it really showed me the power of prose to to bring emotional issues to the fore mm -hmm. and to chart the way that the mind works it, w it was it was a little controversial too, because of its uh, exploration of sexuality, because Charlie discovers sexuality and, and enjoys sexuality fairly freely uh, in the course of his uh, course of his journey, and I seem to remember that that caused a lot of concern among some readers, perhaps especially in America, and maybe especially for American schools. Mm. You, you mentioned that the book had been had been controversial. Yeah, and interesting because these are themes that have picked up with people like Frederick Pohl and. Cyril Cornbluff and people like that, um, and in ways that had been largely ignored around the same time, um, and yet I think perhaps because of the um, prominence of Flair's for Elgin, and obviously had had won a number of uh, science fiction uh, literary awards at the uh, at the time, that I think it has become more pronounced as a result. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the last book, uh, uh, or three books really, uh, on your choice. Tom is the New York trilogy by Paul Auster. This is the, these are the the most uh, contemporary books really written through eighty five to eighty six. These three volumes. Do you have a favourite among them? I think the uh, the locked room particularly impressed me, which was the closing yeah um, the closing part of the trilogy, yeah. um, and it impressed me as did the rest of the book actually because of the whole metafictional aspect of it yeah. um, because um, City of Glass, the opening the opening part of the trilogy is so acutely um, aware or self-aware of uh, the presentation of Paul Oster the writer, Paul Oster the character and so forth um, that um, to close on something that was equally challenging in a slightly different way um, while still subverting the hard-boiled detective fiction of people like Dishiel Hammett and Raymond Chandler and others, um, it seemed to me r remarkably agile the way that he, he approached it. There was a, a real sense of playfulness and, uh, and, and creative verve, actually, which um, seemed to me very, um, um, not just interesting, but, you know, quite engaging uh, when I first came to the book in my 20s. Yeah, I, I think my favourite is probably The City of Glass, just that opening thrill of seeing a detective novel turn into an incredible Chinese box of postmodern 
boxes within boxes and wheels within wheels. It's almost impossible to describe what quite what's going on, except that uh, the w William Wilson, or uh, as his real name is Quinn, actually meets Paul Auster and, and is mistaken for Paul Auster, who is thought to be a detective. At one point in the book, actually meets the real Paul Auster, who's demonstrably the real Paul Auster, with his wife and his his home and his address and everything, and they chat together rather than the way that uh, poor old uh, Lanark meets his meets Alistair Gray hmm. in the middle of um, in the middle of that book. Yeah, and it's, it intrigues me actually because it seems to me to be you know quite a unique book within Auster's own bibliography. I mean, he's he's written many remarkable. Uh, works to the point that he's, he's often talked about as being a potential um, Nobel Prize nominee. Um, and uh, yet there is still something about the New York Trilogy that seems uniquely fresh and a definite sense of energy, but also almost excitement at the, the, the sheer possibilities that are created by this mm. very postmodern, or some would say mm. post-postmodern mm. approach that he has. Mm. It's a strange story. It doesn't quite make sense in the way that Lanark, in real, if you're only to look at it in realistic terms, doesn't quite make sense. Mm. Um, I mean, by comparison, uh, Clockwork Orange, although it's a projected future, speculative future, it is actually realistic, if you see it, I mean, within its own terms. Mm. Whereas there are aspects of Lanark that you, you wonder if this could ever be realistic. And yes. certainly uh, the New York trilogy... Is it magic realism? Is, is it fantasy? Is it allegory? It becomes a very slippery beast indeed. Hmm. Peter Stillman, uh, the character he, he ends up uh, trying to save, Stillman thinks he's going to be killed by his father, is the product of a hideous experiment carried out on him by his father. And that, that's, I saw a link there with, with Charlie Gordon hmm. and... Uh, uh, flowers for Alterman, too. Yeah. And I suppose also even the Wasp Factory with Ian Banks, there's a certain yes. degree of, uh, of parallel there. Yeah, um, yeah and, and it's intriguing because it is, um, for all its evocation of, of a very particular view of New York, you know, this this version of New York, I think, that was popularised through the detective writing of the 20s and 30s specifically, um, it intrigues me just what a human aspect there still is to the, the book. Because, yeah. I mean, it's one of those occasions where everyone appears to be part of a much larger puzzle, um, but yet, in spite of that, there are still believable characters. And I think that's probably true of the uh, second part of the, the, the book, um, Ghosts, yeah. um, where everyone... Um, Just blue, brown, white. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> exactly Colours for names. Yeah. And yet, somehow, um, a little bit like the Brian Aldiss book, Report on Probability A, mm -hmm. which similarly talks about relatively abstract figures but are given just enough of a human dimension to be believable and engaging. Um, it works in a very similar lines. Yeah, I found myself thinking of Philip Dick and uh, Through a Scanner Darkly. Mm. It is a similar sense of kind of paranoia of who's spying on who and who's following whom. And mm. of course the whole point about detective fiction is the detective is spying and tracking down some kind of perpetrator mm. which never quite materialises in this particular <laughs> book. But, but uh, it's about identity too, isn't it? Because mm. wandering through New York, the city of glass... He loses all sense of who he is. He says, "You walk, you walk through New York, and you become, you kind of lose yourself." Hmm. And that made me think a little bit of uh, 
the outsider as well. Yes. There's a kind of, uh, a kind of emptiness at the heart of identity mm. in philosophical terms, I think, which Camus is interested in, which I think Oster is playing with in this book too. Mm. And I think also an interesting commentary on community and society and then the place of the individual within society, which is intriguing because that's something that Oster picked up with again with his screenplay for um, Smoke, the film starring yes, Harvey Yes, I love that movie, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's intriguing to see that theme being visited at an early stage in his, his literary career here. I think I think I kind of got, got Oster when I was reading him first, when I realised he was a huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. And Poe, Poe appears frequently in his work and is frequently referred to in this in this particular trilogy because for all the very modern sense of loss of identity in the city and uh, postmodern fictional games that he plays with how we read texts and how we understand texts for all that it's also just a kind of old-fashioned gothic mystery mm. uh, 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 and the 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 um pen name that that uh, the protagonist chooses william wilson is of course uh the main character and the protagonist of a of a poor story. Mm, yeah. yeah, and I think that's another interesting and often overlooked aspect of, of uh, the New York trilogy is the fact that he does in very subtle ways um, run the gamut of different forms of crime fiction from the hard-boiled thriller in City of Glass through to the locked room mystery yes. by the end, traditional, which, yeah. which is very intriguing. Um, yeah. because he, he has this incredible sense of dexterity that is both traditional and modern, um, and yet in another sense postmodern. Yes, yes. And it's, and it's um, the, the City of Glass in particular has a kind of cool descriptive tone as well, doesn't it? Mm. It, it's, it sets itself absolutely as a realistic prose description, mm. except that what it's describing becomes increasingly impossible yes. to to really believe. Yes, and that transition is made with great subtlety, which is, I think, why it's, why it's so effective. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are our, those are our five books, Tom, and uh, I think we've seen, I've seen, and I think we've d uncovered a number of links between them, which are really quite intriguing. Um, I, again, Oster is so full of intertextual references, and that's of course, one of the striking things about Lanark as well, mm. it contains everything, including a list of its own plagiarisms, <laughs> which was such fun. I mean, any final thoughts on these on these five books, well, what they've meant to you? It's been really interesting to have a look back on them because, um, as I say, in most cases, I came to these books quite early on, and it intrigues me, in hindsight, to see just how influential each of them have been in their own way. Um, whether it be the postmodern aspect or whether it be the sort of um, th that issue of where science fiction or speculative fiction crosses into the mainstream. Um, these are all things that have um, had influence on the way that I write um, and on the subjects I write about. Um, and that's been true of whether I've been writing about literature or writing about films and popular culture. Um, the, the sense that perhaps genre is not as monolithic as it, it may have seemed to me in my earlier years um, is something that has continued to engage me and uh, make me want to, to write in greater detail about particular subjects. And uh, I think these books may have kick-started that, um, that particular impulse. I think that's so true that the genre fiction has seriously come into its own in terms of literature. I'm a fan of Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah. 
and his fiction is actually, in its day, was thought to be genre fiction and is now seriously uh, studied as uh, significant modern novels, really. Yeah. And uh, in the same way, I think, on the other side of of Burgess and, and Gray and Philip Dick and Kurt Vonnegut, we've got Thomas Pynchon, Margaret Atwood, David Mitchell, Ian Banks, too, of course, Michael Shabon, Haruki Murakami, who I've been reading a lot of recently. Mm. These are all people who've picked up the challenge of moving beyond genre bounds mm. and writing the most intriguing kind of modern fiction. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your, for your choice. Uh, and uh, I think we will now sign off and uh, have a cup of coffee. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.